Great to be back with you here in the Trojan Talk podcast. I am Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, and it is Rivalry Week, USC-UCLA, Saturday in the Rose Bowl. We are going to jump right into the show this week. Not much to say at the top. The only injury update that came from Thursday's practice was that Lincoln Riley said wide receiver Mario Williams and linebacker Eric Gentry will be, quote, available this weekend. So you can interpret that as you wish. I would caution anybody to not make assumptions until we see what they're doing pregame and everything else. But plenty else to discuss. And we do it with Max Brown, the former USC quarterback and our TrojanSports.com analyst. We're breaking down the storylines of the week. Obviously, the aftermath of the Travis Dye season-ending injury, just devastating for the Trojans and anyone who enjoys watching football because, man, he was fun. is fun, but no more this season. We'll get into the fallout and ramifications from that. We have a good Brendan Rice discussion. I think he's been really interesting this year. Kind of an enigma. Talking a little Tuli, Tui Pelotu. Some Caleb Williams, of course. Some Heisman. Some Heisman talk. Max Brown comes in hot with the Heisman takes. And, of course, we break down the matchup with the Bruins on Saturday in the Rose Bowl. Here we go. All right. As promised... As delivered, as usual, our resident TrojanSports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback, Max Brown, in the show. Max, how you doing? Yes, sir. What's up, Ryan? A little rivalry week. I am doing well. How are you? A little rivalry week. A big, big rivalry week. Big one. They tried to make it little. They, they lost, man. They're trying to. Uh, this, this would have been even bigger if they held up their end of the bargain and, and finished the deal versus Arizona. But either way, still still a lot to play for, no doubt. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. And we're going to get into that. The Pac-12 chaos that ensued last week and how it indirectly, I think, impacts USC. But we did not do a preview podcast last week for the Colorado game out of respect for Colorado. And that game... <laughs> <laughs> well said, well said. And that, and that game went exactly as would have expected in the end. A slow start, but it was going to get where it got one way or the other. USC 55-17 last Friday night. So we will break down the storylines coming off that game, the storylines of the week. But I, we're going to go heavy into the UCLA preview part of this uh, podcast. Get, set, get you set up for the matchup this weekend in the Rose Bowl. But as always, we will start working backwards. And we have to start with... The unfortunate news of the week. Maybe one of the worst possible sights for USC Fantasy in the Coliseum. Travis Dye carted off the field last Friday. Done for the season with a lower leg injury. And I've written about it a few times already. We keep asking guys about it. And, and, and the way they talk about him with this this reverence. And, and you saw it on the field, too. I mean, I've seen those scenes where teams gather around an injured player. But that was like a... a, a procession line of each guy having to get their moment with with Travis and let them know what he meant to this team and and that they're, they're with him and everything. Max, what was your thought watching that unfold on Friday? Yeah, what you said, um, I think it's, that, that's well worded. Um, I think you sometimes see the whole team rallying around guys in that type of moment, but it doesn't happen every time. And I think it's a testament to what Travis Dye has done. And 
I thought it was cool Lincoln Riley's comments to us uh, Monday night on Trojans Live. Um, he mentioned that, hey, th- th- this program might not be where it is without Travis Dye. And what he's referring to is nothing that we see on Saturdays, nothing that has anything to do with any statistical measure in terms of winning a – or not a statistical measure on a Saturday. What he's talking about is getting on guys in fall camp and setting a standard in spring ball and setting a standard in winter conditioning and workouts. And um, for those that don't know, that's where you win – that's where you win ball games. I mean – Guys like Caleb Williams and, and, and Jordan Addison balling out and, 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 when, and when Eric Gentry has a, a big-time game on Saturday, you can trace it all the way back to what you did in the offseason, and you get the sense that this team would not be where they're at without personalities like Travis Dye. And it, it also, honestly feels like it was kind of one of one. I mean, it feels like uh, Dietrich gets mentioned in a similar lane and Shane Lee gets it measured, uh, mentioned in a similar lane in terms of leadership, but... Um, you get the sense that yeah, Travis had a had a different gauge there, and they're certainly going to miss him. But to me, they miss him more moving forward. If it's a close game in the fourth quarter, and someone needs to get the huddle going, and someone needs to keep someone accountable, that's where they miss him the most. I, I think they're going to be okay replacing him on a first and second down and a second quarter type of thing. To me, it's the critical down and distances where it's more than just okay, how good of a running back are you? It speaks to the leadership and uh, all those factors that, hey, going into the season, we weren't sure, hey, how is this team going to mesh with all these transfers, right? Well, you need a guy like Travis Dye with his personality where everyone respects him. I've always said that. Some people ask me, oh, what's the difference between when you play USC and Pitt and all those different experiences? At the end of the day, everyone speaks hard work and everyone can respect that. And uh, Travis Dye gets nothing but Reagan reviews for everyone. And uh, I think he's earned that. So it's heartbreaking to see him go down. I think he's still got a lot of football left in him, but uh, a heartbreaker nonetheless. Well, take us more inside that. And is, is there a good example uh, from your playing days, either something that you said in the huddle or something someone else spoke up and just kind of a, a moment where it, it needed to happen. So someone needed to kind of, you know, take hold of the, of the, of the moment and, and, uh, and get the guys on the same page in some way. Is there anything, any good story that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I would say the best leader I was around at USC is Devon Kennard or was Devon Kennard. Um, He's been cut a few times this season, but uh, still, in the, still in the league almost a decade, decade later. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he's a stud. Um, and he just had a knack for, you know, if, if you are working hard and you're setting the standard and you're in that top 5% on a team, then you have earned the right to, you know, not just call guys out because no one likes that, but relate to guys and push guys and have a pulse for who needs to be talked about. So he's a guy that sticks out. Hayes Pollard's a guy that sticks out. And um, I, I don't mean to be arrogant when I say this, but when you look back in 2016, I, I feel like I had a decent pulse on that team, and it's a, a factor of why I got the nod early on versus Sam, when in hindsight, it's like, oh, Sam might have been more skilled, like, whatever. But there's something to be said about, you know, when you've been around the block a few times and you've you've seen iterations of a locker room and you, you've, you've kind of been there, done that in terms of a off-the-field work ethic thing, which Travis Dice certainly has, much more than anyone I just listed at the college ranks. Um, it just comes with a certain level of respect that uh, doesn't always show out on a TV screen, but you better believe all the guys in the locker room certainly know uh, know who's putting that work in and who uh, who's earned that uh, earned that uh, position. Yeah, absolutely. So taking it back to the field, we asked Lincoln Riley on Tuesday if this changes 
the way they operate the running game in any way. And he gave a very coy response. He goes, yeah, you could say it does, but I'm not going to say any more about it. So I, what do you what do you think is different now with this offense, with the way they, they use the run game, with the way they use those running backs without Travis Dye on the field? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and it's funny because, you know, uh, to, the, to the naked eye, yeah, you noticed Tra- Travis Dye was play- playing better than Austin Jones. But those first few, few weeks, it wasn't, like, totally egregious. Like, I remember kind of talking with some some folks behind the scenes of, like, man, I wonder why Austin Jones isn't getting all the uh, all the carries, or at least some of the carries, because it really dropped off shortly. And I know he had some missed assignments in there at times, but uh, I would assume he would be, you know, the, the go-to three-down back with – more sprinkling in Relic Brown um, in some of those pass-heavy situations. What's delicate, though, is, you know, I think you've run the risk in the past few weeks of when Relic is in there, you are asking him to do very specific things. It, in other words, he's not able to do every single thing in the playbook. I don't know that to be true. I just know that to be the case with a lot of freshman running backs where Austin Jones, maybe there's more of a comfort level there. And then Darwin Barlow is interesting to me as well because – I mean, it's funny. The past few years we've been on this podcast, we've been juggling through four running backs, and we were always complaining about why they weren't specializing one guy. And then this year they specialize one guy, or they, they lean on one guy, and then now we're kind of like, or at least I'm kind of like, oh, well, why doesn't Dar- Darwin Barlow get in there? Right. Darwin Barlow is no slouch, and I would expect him to get some carries in this game. I don't know if the drop-off to him is a playbook thing or if it's an assignment thing, but to me, to the naked eye, he's got the skill, and maybe they lean on him to uh, have a bigger, bigger role in uh, in games moving forward. Yeah, it's it's an enigma to me. He was getting a lot of buzz last year. I was having people, you know, around the program, telling me they thought he might have been the most talented running back on the team last year. And and we all saw what Keontae Ingram did uh, as a starter there, and definitely earned that role. But I, I came into this year, well, I, I guess once they brought in the transfers, I didn't know what his role was going to be, but. I definitely didn't think he would be just totally out of the picture. I mean, he's barely played this season. He, he's not even even getting looks. Clearly the number four guy uh, until this point. So I don't know if he'll get a lot of opportunity now. I, I do agree with you that even though Jones is going to be the, the new lead back, maybe he's not getting 95% of the carries like, like Dye was. So maybe there is some more opportunity. But I do not know what is holding Darwin Barlow back. Because I look at him, I think he has all the pieces. He runs hard. He it, the numbers in his limited opportunities always seem to back it up. They kind of he maximizes his yards and opportunities. So we'll see. It's it's interesting though, and and the the pass blocking uh, factor that you you uh, touched on briefly there, I think, is going to be the biggest curiosity for me. Do they do different things to protect Caleb if they don't trust the running back to do what Travis Dye was doing? And and again, I said it on I went on serious. XM Radio this week and was talking about Die. I said, you know, I would need to see every running back in the country to be able to confidently say this, but if you're telling me that there's a better pass-blocking running back out there, I'd, I'd like to see him because, I, again, we talked about it many times. I was just so impressed with Die in that regard. So that's the big curiosity to me is what the impact is in that regard. How's our boy uh, Marquis Step doing this year? Oh, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> Well, no, I, I do know, actually. I think he's back in the transfer portal and looking to, to, look, looking to move on. You know, I, I'm, I'm dug in so deeply there that I don't even think I could extract myself from that one. So I will just, uh, I will just stay dug in and, and, hope, and hope that uh, 
I come out looking good in the end uh, one of these days. But yes, you know, we have some hits, we have some misses. Uh, more hits than misses, I'd say. He might hit later on. He's a good back. No, he is. He is. He's an example of a guy that I think, you know, injury can just totally derail the trajectory you're on. And, and then, you know, circumstances, everything. So maybe he went to the wrong program in Nebraska. But anyways, this is not another Marquis Step podcast for, for the archives. This is a USC podcast. The run game will be interesting. Another interesting guy for me, and, it, and I really want your thoughts here. The, the Brendan Rice experience has been, has been uh, has run the full gamut each week. You just never know what you're going to get from Brendan Rice on any game, any play. And he comes out last week and just has a, a, a really lackluster start. Um, obviously, the interception that kind of goes off him and, and the defensive back just pulls it away from him for only Caleb's second interception of the year. I asked Rice if he and Caleb talked about that play, and, and he said, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you what we said, but we were a little chippy with each other. So I'm sure Caleb wasn't too happy that the second pick came on a very catchable pass to a receiver down the field. Again, we talked about this, like the message board is screaming, Twitter screaming. He, he's too inconsistent. Put Kyle Ford in, give Kyle Ford those snaps. And then what's he do? He makes this incredible catch on the sideline. That might be his best catch of the year. He catches a touchdown. He catches a great pass over the middle with his hands uh, it, while moving and just – like is two totally different players in that game. And I think I was able to glean a little bit of insight afterward. Uh, you know, most of these post game interviews uh, don't offer too many revealing kernels or nuggets, but I asked him what that catch on the sideline did for his confidence. And he, and he, and he gave me what you'd expect. Yeah. It helped the confidence, but then he goes, I've definitely struggled with my confidence this year. And that makes total sense when you see him. I think he's one of those guys where if, if things he, – he needs something good to happen to kind of in a game to, to get locked in and, and to trust himself and to be able to unlock his full abilities. And until that happens, you can just see that tentativeness and that I'm a little unsure of myself, and that's where those drops come in. That's my takeaway. But my other takeaway is that I think that the staff – really believes in his upside and that's why they keep giving him all these chances i mean go back a couple games ago he had like uh, 12 targets and, and only five catches but they kept feeding him and he starts off badly friday and they keep feeding him so uh, i think he has a longer leash than some other players might because i think they see that man if this guy gets to where we think he can get to we have a real asset here I'm with you, and I think, uh, and this applies to Kyle Ford as well, they, they really want that exposition to be the physical, make the contested catch, give you an added wrinkle that you might not have, um, or that you you already have uh, on the other side with, with a Mario Williams or some of the slot receivers, like to be able to contrast that with a bigger body receiver, they really want one of those guys to work, and to your point, Rice with the, the higher ceiling might be the reason that uh, he, he edges out Ford, if you're saying both, guy, both those guys are, um, let's call it, you know, B plus rating, and I know there's going to be people, people here in that saying, Kyle Ford's an A, and, and I get that, but if, you know, if there's receivers better than those guys on our own roster, like, maybe the, the, the ceiling for Rice is higher for why he keeps going up, going in, but I think the way that you, you know, phrase the confidence thing, I think it's a, it's a fair point, because put yourself in Brennan Rice's shoes. He was the dude last year for Colorado, and, you know, very little, call it, um, 
pressure in terms of where he stood on the depth chart because he knew he was the dude, right? His quarterback position, his quarterback play might not have been great, but he knows that, hey, even if I do drop a ball, like, I'm not worried about my job versus he comes to this roster. And this is why some guys at USC don't work because it is so tight and those throws are so precious, right? When he does get the ball thrown his way, it's more intense that to, to, to catch that, to make a guy miss, to do your job every, every little bit. And sure, pressure makes diamonds, and that's what, you want, that's what you sign up for when you go to USC. But I'm telling you, that, that factor nets out differently with different guys. And when you start thinking more than you ever did at Colorado, I'm sure that impacted your, uh, or his confidence. And it works both ways, right? Because if you find a catch early and you make a big play early on in the game, well, then that can springboard your confidence even more. But if you don't find success for whatever reason, um, I think it can work against you because you know how precious those opportunities are when you have a receiver room that's, you know, 10 deep of guys that think they should play. So I think that's a fair point. I also think think it speaks to, hey, Brendan Rice, you know, he's got a lot of ball left ahead of him in college, so this is something he can grow grow with. But, uh Keep that in mind in terms of the mentality shift for Brennan Rice by coming to USC and why that might differ for uh, from from his previous uh, previous location. Yeah, also a good point. Uh, I think you know where he's really interesting is going to be next year, getting him ready for next year, where maybe he has to play a much bigger role. You know, we, we'll see who they bring in the transfer portal again this off season, but I, I think. Um, that's where his best potential comes. Right now, I think Kyle Ford's the more reliable, dependable receiver. Uh, but I think that they're looking at the big picture with Brendan Rice and what he could be. They do. If they go, everyone's healthy. And if it's the whole, your three best out there, I mean, do you, do you mix up? Do you try to get creative with, you know, Ataj, Mario, and Jordan as the three and make Mario like an, an outside guy? Like he did sometimes at Oklahoma. If, if it's Mike Jack and he's that guy, like is it putting Jordan at the X and Mike Jack at the Z and um, Mario or Taj in the slot? I don't know. This is actually a good question. I should ask Lincoln this. I don't know how interchangeable those positions are in Lincoln's offense. I know in most spread offenses, they're relatively interchangeable. I don't get the sense that they'll do that just where we're at in the season. But a unique wrinkle should should uh, should everyone be healthy. It's a tough decision to figure out how to maximize all those very talented players, but that's why he gets the big house on the cliff in Palos Verdes. So... Um, <laughs> I'm sure he'll figure that out. But, yeah, it's, you know, this last month has just really showed us the depth of that position where every week it's been someone else's moment to shine, really. And uh, maybe that uh, gets back to where things were early in the season as Jordan Addison's getting healthy now. I don't know what Mario Williams' status is. You know, that's, that's a confusing one to me. So three games ago, he was – it's been framed to us that he was – an unexpected late week scratch and just at the very end just wasn't able to go. And he's now missed three games and yet was out there pregame Friday running around looking like himself. And, and, I, and I understand that there's a fine line between moving freely and, and moving at an elite Division One college football level and maybe the eye can't perceive that. But I, I don't, I'm still confused as he went, how he went from late game or in the week surprise scratch to missing almost a month of time now. And uh, I really couldn't guess at the status for this week, but Jordan Addison played a little bit last week. And that was the plan was just to get kind of ease him back in 
and Lincoln Riley said he should be closer to 100% this week. They'll be mostly mostly at full strength with, with those guys. I know you're not in the business of uh, doing hypotheticals, but do you think it's something else with, with Mario, or do you even have a gauge gauge there? I would not rule that out. I certainly don't want to attach myself to uh, any kind of them uh, in that regard, but I'm not making sense of what his situation is, and I'll just leave it at that. And maybe he's back this week, and it's all moot. We'll see. Caleb Williams is making has made has made the incredible routine all season, but we're now four straight games where he has gotten to five touchdowns somehow between passing and rushing, and it just almost seems like it it happens routinely, quietly, like like no one's going five touchdown game for Caleb this week. It just kind of happens. It's incredible. What um, did anything jump out to you about Caleb's performance on Friday? Obviously, he had the pick, and maybe he wasn't his sharpest early in the game, but in the end, five touchdowns again. Yeah, it's the thing. Nothing really jumped out because this is what we're getting used to uh, every single week. I think uh, two points, though, on that theme. I think, one, I would rather the offense start slow and then finish strong rather than kind of what I'm covering Wazoo's game this week, like what Wazoo did where you start fast and then you limp to the finish line. I think that's a, 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 a bad way to, to end the week. And, and we've all talked about that, you know, USC's in a unique phase where it was very, this was very very clearly the weaker stretch of their opponents. And I think there's some human nature there of maybe uh, you, you think it's going to be a cakewalk and so you walk out a little slow and you need to shock your system to get right. So no huge concern for me there, but that, that was my read on that situation. I'll say this, though, about Caleb Williams. It is funny um, being around USC circles, and it's – we keep talking about Caleb Williams of this as if, like, oh, hopefully he gets an invite to New York, and, like, oh, it'd be so cool if he can go to New York. Like, guys, this dude might win this thing. Like, he might win the Heisman. Like, don't sleep on that. Like, he, he is right in the thick of it. And I, I'm not going to say he's the favorite, but he is. He is top three. He is – or he is he, – Okay, I'll, I'll go conservative. He's top four right now, and you have guys above him that do not have the data points ahead of them, uh, ahead of them to uh, you know to, to to prove that they're Heisman worthy, like Caleb does. I mean, Head and Hooker for Tennessee, he's not going to have a conference championship game, uh, and there's you can go down the list. But Caleb Williams, this stretch ahead of him, when you have UCLA, USC, and a conference championship game, if he keeps playing like he's playing right now. He is going to win the Heisman and have a jersey retired in the end zone. And I don't think USC fans have, like, wrapped their head around that because for most schools, they're not used to Heismans, right? They don't have six or seven, whatever the uh, official count is uh, lately for, for USC. But we're, we're lucky, right? We, we have that. We're, we're fortunate. Any other school, they'd be having a whole Heisman campaign around Caleb, and it would be a whole effort. I know I know Lincoln has, you know, alluded to that and, uh, you know, has, has – subtly made the case and i'm sure it'll heat up with the weeks 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 remaining but don't sleep on that usc fans our quarterback it's not even like a long shot he is right in the thick of things his stats match up his impact matches up where usc stands in terms of their conference championship hopes and where their ranking is like he is right in the middle of it and uh, i think we need to start being uh, aware that hey if we could have another uh, jersey retired here in a month and i don't want to get ahead of myself but that's the scope that we're uh, we're operating from. No, that's that's where I wanted to take this next. I was going to ask you exactly that if you if you thought he had a chance to win the whole thing because I do, 
I do, and and I hadn't considered the point you just made, but but it's absolutely right. Like there is a disproportionate level of minimal buzz within this fan base about that aspect of things. And, and you're right. Any any other school, if a guy was even a top five candidate and they knew he couldn't win, but he, he was had a chance to get to New York, that would be the storyline every week and uh, be pumping up the stat lines every week and his Heisman case. And I, I've written about it once, and I asked Riley about it last week, but it's just not really getting talked about a ton. And maybe that is, for the point you made, just because USC is conditioned to – to having you know this happen, but uh, certainly hasn't happened in several years. And last week I broke down the top four candidates, and I don't see how you can say definitively that anybody else is definitely going to win it over him. C.J. Stroud at Ohio State, his numbers are significantly off pace from where they were last year. So he didn't win last year. He lost to Bryce Young, and, and they were both deserving. Is he going to win a year later with lesser numbers? Uh, maybe he will. Maybe he will. But I don't think that he's done anything to put himself head and shoulders over Caleb Williams. Uh, Hendon Hooker at Tennessee played his worst game in the game they lost. Like He did not have a good game. I forget what the stats were, but he had no touchdown pass, I think, 162 yards. It was an off game. Okay, look at Caleb Williams. USC's loss was one of his best games. They lost despite him, not because of him. He At Utah, played one of his best games of the season, if not his best game. So he was not a culprit in their setback. His worst game of the season at Oregon State, he still leads the game-winning drive and throws one of his best passes of the season for the game-winning touchdown. So even on his worst night of the year, he has a moment like that, a Heisman moment. Blake Corm at Michigan, it's, it's hard for running back to win. He puts up great numbers every week. Maybe if Michigan uh, keeps going and beats Ohio State and goes all the way, maybe there's some uh, a path for him. But I think that there's a real chance, and, and you laid it out. It's because of what's ahead. Because of these next two and maybe three games and then beyond, he's going to be in the spotlight. He's going to have national eyes on him, and maybe – that's been the problem, that, that people haven't been watching enough of him. People haven't been breaking out their Sling TV subscription to check out the Pac-12 network uh, on the East Coast. But he will have every opportunity, and now he has to keep doing it, but that path is there. It feels like the consensus for this week is that you're going to have an absolute shootout, UCLA versus USC, absolute shootout. And I would say most people think USC is going to win, but either way, it's going to be a shootout. So let's say that that scenario exists, like – if that happens, and it's a 48-44 win or even higher for USC, there's no way you don't get there without Caleb Williams putting up huge numbers. And if that happens, he will be the favorite after this week. CJ Stroud, I know, I know what he's what he's done, and to me, that's the that's the that's the biggest competitor right now. I think he's the favorite sitting in this in this chair right now. But if if this game versus UCLA plays out like we think it will. Caleb's going to leapfrog him, and it's going to be his show to lose with uh, two games remaining. Love it. And I was going to take it even one step further, uh, looking at my rundown of, of notes here for the podcast. Looking at the next year, I mean, we, we've heard the talk that he could be the number one pick in the draft after his junior season, after next year. Surveying the college football landscape as it is right now, is there anybody else that you would even consider taking over him if you're an NFL team building a franchise? No, no, no one jumps out. And in large part, because I feel like this NFL 
QB class is going to be really good um, with C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, Will Levis from Kentucky, and then Michael Penix, who, hey, that dude had the quarterback game of the year against Oregon um, last last week. That dude was balling. And it'll be interesting to see what he does. I would expect him to go to the NFL, but if he doesn't, then in the conference, it's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, Caleb and uh, and Penix. I'm sure Bo Nix will leave. I don't think he's a top two, top three round pick, but I think he'll definitely get buzz. But uh, that's not answering your direct question. There's not another underclassman quarterback that I can think of that uh, that compares to Caleb. Fun little Pac-12 note. Tanner McKee for Stanford continues to be on NFL watch list, which is just interesting because yeah. he does not get any of that chatter from the college uh, college podcast. So, a couple uh, West Coast names to uh, keep your name to keep your uh, keep your eye on. Well, I wasn't going to go here, but it just popped into my head. I was having a conversation with uh, some Cal fans earlier this week, of all things, uh, about Jack Plummer, and, and there's a, a real divide in, in their fan base as to as to if he's a capable enough quarterback um and not not to go down that well but where i'm going with it is that you know someone said that well he's, he's not a top half of the conference quarterback and i said well look at the top half of the conference and i, and I, I broke down the names is the is the pac-12 the best quarterback conference in the country right now without a doubt we have five quarterbacks on the debut o'brien watch list and it's almost thanksgiving 100 percent um i mean there were people that said Cam Rising was a dark horse Heisman candidate, and he is like an afterthought at the quarterback position in our conference. And he is a really good quarterback. Yeah. I mean, you have Caleb, you have Penix. To me, I mean, Caleb's one, Penix is two, Bo Nix is three. Like, boom, boom, boom. And in the game I'm calling this week, you got Jaden Delora. And I don't know, I mean, anyone that's followed my content, I think Jaden Delora is the most underrated quarterback in college football. He's balling out all year and. Um, Arizona's not going to get headlines per se, but he is balling out. And you have Cam Ward as well. Who Cam Ward had like all the offseason headlines, um, almost like right there with Caleb Williams. It felt like bizarrely enough, bizarre enough for for West Coast, uh, from a West Coast college football perspective. And he's not even in the conversation. So the Pac-12 quarterback play is is big time. Um, and the Jack Plummer point too. I know this isn't a Cal podcast, but their offensive line is terrible. I think Plummer's actually. Decent. I think he'll find himself in an NFL camp, but he just needs to find uh, he needs to find some protection because that's made his life uh, made his life a mess this year uh, trying to drop back with that offensive line. Yeah, and, and and that's the point I was making when I started to break down the list. You also forgot DTR there uh, listing off the Pac-12 quarterback. Exactly. I totally forgot the quarterback <laughs> that we're playing this week, who's like elite, and I didn't even mention him on when I was going on a rant of call, of, uh, of quarterbacks. That's the best example I can give right there. Yes. Yep, uh, I'll give you plenty of time to make up for that uh, with DTR the rest of the show. Before we get there, though, uh, as we wrap up the offensive conversation, it's time for your favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the week, if you have one. Yeah, I have one. It's not as juicy as, week, as weeks past, but it was the backside post to uh, Brandon Rice for that touchdown. And the play, I mean, it was Colorado. The the, the playbook was not that, uh, not that creative, per se. I thought, I thought they did some cool things with Relief Brown, but... That backside post to Brennan Rice, to me, made me sit up in my seat a little bit where I was like, all right, there he is. And one, it's a big-time throw by Caleb Williams, making throws like that look just casual like it's nothing. But it's not just nothing. That's a 40-yard strike on a dime trusting your receiver, and your receiver goes up and makes a uh, contested catch. It also stuck out to me because I'm happy for Brennan Rice. That's against his, his old team and his old teammates, Nico Reed. So it's cool that he... 
got that catch and from a confidence perspective being able to uh you know get, get over the hump there um but then it's also a little bit of an x factor for me as well in that if teams are going to roll coverage towards jordan addison or towards even taj washington and roll safety down over the top of taj washington well structurally what does that mean that means that you're going to have an, a vacated zone backside for post routes to happen for dig routes to happen for one-on-one matchups to happen and that's why you need that x receiver whether it's kyle ford or brennan rice you need those guys to show up so i thought it was more of a uh kind of uh a theme catch in that it was touching on a bunch of themes or I guess checking a bunch of boxes that you wanted to see um, in a game that we always knew was not going to be close, but uh, credit Brenner Rice for, uh, for making a catch there. And on my pocket presence, Pac-12 show, I'm breaking down some more Arizona plays. Got a couple Arizona plays this week. And I say that because it's a good look into how UCLA's defense got beat last week. Um, The Arizona offense and the, and the USC offense are, very similar in many regards so could be worth uh, watching those breakdowns as well absolutely we will we will pump those up on twitter um and then we'll get into more of that here in our ucla breakdown coming up but since you mentioned it was kind of a bland playbook they weren't trying to uh, get too extravagant i wondered why they went with the fake pat two-point conversion run by will rose was that purely just to give UCLA is something else that they have to work on this week. Is this a, that, that kind of the, the the mind games that's being played with that? Yeah, I asked myself the same thing. My uh, my dad texted me that when it went down. He's like, "Why are you doing that?" Versus the, one of the worst teams in college football. I my final answer here is I think they saw something on film where Colorado was overplaying that edge, and college and college coaches love being like, "Hey." We treat every opponent the same type of thing. So if you are seeing some egregious over, um, you know, um, you know, uh, a team going out of their zone, like you're taking advantage of that, I think there's an element there. And I also think there's an element of putting something on film, right, of, hey, we're watching these films, and a lot of our edge rushers that we're going against are getting real close to blocking a kick. Mm. And Dennis Lynch is always having people at his feet. Or, And I don't know this to be true. I haven't gone through every single PAT. But I think there is something to be said about putting it on tape so then every opponent that you play here on out has to then you get that edge guy thinking. And, I mean, we all see it. On a PAT or a field goal, if you're one half step too slow, you're going to miss the ball. So getting them thinking, putting it on film, I think there's some truth to that, and maybe there was a strategy around that as well. Max, if if you had broken down every PAT from this season, that would be next-level analysis. (laughs) I'll leave that to some – Hardo USC fan or some specialist guru guy. That person exists somewhere, I'm confident. One one last uh, topic from, from the last game, and we are kind of glossing over the defense, but it was Colorado, and uh, I'm not going to give uh, too much credit for the bounce-back game because Colorado's just not good offensively, so that's what should have happened. But Thule, Tui Pelotu, two and a half more sacks leads the country in sacks that's just incredible to me and i I don't know if that's getting enough attention this year Uh, 11 and a half sacks in 10 games and so i went through the record book just to kind of see where that compared and it is the most sacks by a usc player since morgan breslin at 13 in 2012 uh the all-time most was tim ryan 20 in 1989 um 
uh, you know, a few at 16, 16 and a half. But he's going to finish top two or three all-time single-season sacks for USC and has a chance to lead the country. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine how much his draft stock has vaulted this year. And it just speaks to his versatility, too. He is doing that at not an elite rush type of position. Right? It's not like he's doing that at the rush end where you're getting all those one-on-one matchups backside and just taking advantage. Like, no, he is doing it at a more I know he I know he gets outside a little bit, but at much more of an interior type of position on the defensive line, which is so impressive. And if you're a scout, it's the versatility that jumps out. The fact that he can go inside, like he, he could be a eh, I need to look at his updated way, but he could be a three four defensive end or a 4-3 defensive end and in the NFL that versatility is huge no Tui's been been game changing and, and Lincoln talked about it with us on Monday of you know obviously the defense isn't playing at an elite level really isn't even playing at a, a very good level and but Tuli is the one guy that defensively and we'll see what happens with Gentry but one the one guy that offensively you have to adjust for it, right? You might have to change your blocking schemes. And anytime you're getting an offense to think or adjust what they're doing, that means they're being reactive rather than, you know, proactive in how they're attacking you. So his, uh, his impact, even if he doesn't get the two and a half sacks, just by being productive and active there in the middle goes uh, a long way for this defense. I think he becomes the, the go-to example now in recruiting of – yeah, you never know what that three-star guy might become. You know, Thule was a three-star guy. Remember Thule, the three-star? So, I mean, he came out of Lawndale High School. Obviously, his brother was already on the team, so he should have been, you know, kind of a name at that point. He shouldn't have been under the radar. But there was, like, no buzz when he when he signed in whatever class that was, the 2020 class. It, it wasn't a great class overall, and that, that was maybe part of it. But, um, yeah, what a find he has proven to be. And he is just, I don't, I guess humble is the word. Uh, reluctant is maybe another word. He just really wants no attention or spotlight. So low-key, low key, any of that stuff. But it was funny last week. I mean, he was also leading the country in sacks last week. And I asked him after practice, I said, you know, what would it mean to you to, to maybe finish the season as a national leader? And he just gave me like a three-word response. So I went back to the well I said, I mean, does it does it mean anything to you though that that you're you have more sacks than anybody in the country? And he paused for a second. And he goes, mm, "Not really." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's funny. His tone of interviews, and I get it, every guy's different, but his his tone of interviews is almost like he's annoyed with you guys even asking questions. So that, uh, that uh, he's all about ball, I guess. So I went to Shane Lee after that, and I and I I said I said Shane. I, I tried everything I could to get any reaction out of Thule about him leading the country in sacks, and I, I didn't get one. And, and Shane laughed because uh, they all know how, how he is. And he, he just really is, you know, they do apply that word humble to him all the time. But it's also probably part of what feeds that work ethic that Lincoln Riley has praised, you know, a dozen times this year of the guy never misses a rep, never misses a practice, never misses a snap. This, that, and the other, and and just he's just locked in at all times. All right, let's let's turn it forward. Let's get to the rivalry game, USC UCLA, and what could have been if the Bruins did not trip against Arizona last week. And actually, before we get to the matchup, I want to talk about that Pac-12 chaos that I teased earlier. 
the path was laid out for USC's best case for a CFP berth was that they were going to play this uh, UCLA team that was, what, 12 in the CFP last week, may have been higher by this week. They were going to play a number six Oregon team that could have been maybe five by this by the point that they played in the Pac-12 championship game, a ranked Notre Dame team. And then Oregon and UCLA go ahead and lose and just really take a lot of steam out of those matchups. And uh, if, if that's the way it plays out and they, and they play Oregon in the Pac-12 title game, it's still going to be a great win for whoever wins it. But the, there was an opportunity to, to nab a top five win you know, right before the final selection. And that's not there anymore. And I just I really think that those two losses indirectly have hurt USC as much as anybody. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I think at the end of the day, you know, Oregon still is ranked high enough where um, where it's still going to be a big-time game. And I do think the Pac-12 is strong enough as a whole, and that narrative has shifted this year where I actually think they'll be fine. I I think it's just the uh, the coolness factor of what that game would have been sure. is now now away. Um, but I think you know it's funny because with Oregon losing, Washington now makes a huge jump in the CFP. So I know I know USC didn't uh, doesn't play Washington, but the narrative of the conference you know still stays strong. And then a backdoor Oregon State now at twenty two in the CFP. They'll win this week most likely, and then that's another showdown with Oregon and Oregon State later in the year, and obviously USC having a road win versus Oregon State, which could very well be a top-20 team. That's not insignificant in a uh, in a positive way for SC. Yep. Um, we won't go too far down the well of, of the CFP potential. We'll just, you know, as, as Lincoln Riley says, and he, he said it again this week, he said, I just I've seen it happen too many times. You just, if you just keep winning – Things have a way of working out. So uh, if, if they somehow do get to 12-1 and Pac-12 champion status, that would be a major slight that they don't find a way into that top four. But we'll, we'll get more into that if they can get past this game and the next game and so on. All right, the matchup, Max, tell us how did UCLA lose to Arizona? A three-win Arizona team, now four-win Arizona team, deals the, the Bruins a, a stunner last week. Yeah, they lost because of, uh, you know, one matchup that also is uh, applicable to USC this week, and it's the strength of Arizona's passing game against what is a weakness in, on UCLA's team in terms of their pass defense, which is funny because going ahead to this game, it's, it's really, you know, a great UCLA rushing attack versus a, a USC defense that's been tested in that regard, and then a great USC passing attack against, like I said, a UCLA pass defense that, that has struggled. But, um, yeah, that, that was the big factor. And then the Arizona defense, you know, played active, played energetic, played passionate, and they were able to string together enough stops, which that feels like that needs to be the DNA of USC's defense moving forward is, you know, you, we're, we're not asking them to keep a team under 20 or really even under 30, to be honest. It's can you string a quarter of football together where you have enough stops because this offense will do its thing. But, yeah, UCLA, obviously huge, uh, huge loss for sure. So so break down this matchup for us. What, what's the biggest concern for USC as you size this up? Yeah, it's got to be the run game for UCLA. And uh, Zach Charbonnet gets, uh, gets all the credit and uh, – 
And rightfully so. But uh, I've been impressed with some of the other backs they have. Kaz Allen, um, I don't believe he played last week. I haven't got an update on him. But the week before when Zach Charbonnet was out, keep keep that in front of your mind too, USC fans. Charbonnet has been banged up and doing something similar to what it feels like USC's roster has been doing in terms of trying to get Charbonnet healthy at the right time to, uh, you know, have him be ready for this game. But they got uh, Kaz Allen who's been doing good things. And then Keegan Jones, the, the other speedster back for Oregon and to me, or for UCLA. And UCLA is the best when all three of those guys are getting involved, both in the run game. And then Allen's, or Jones is dynamic um, out of the backfield in the passing game, um, especially on third down. So that, to me, has to be the biggest concern for USC. UCLA does have some solid pass rushers. Uh, Latu, Latu, um, early on in the season, was the best pass rusher in the conference. We talked about how Thule's kind of taken that reins, but Latu's been special at times and pass rush-wise, especially if USC's banged up at the tackle position. That's another thing to, to keep your eye on there. What about the DTR factor? And we've It feels like it's been consistent through now several defensive coordinator uh, regimes that the mobile quarterbacks just really befuddled this defense. We saw, you know, Cam Rising. We saw Jaden Delora really buy time and extend plays and, and make plays happen. How much is that at, near the top of that list of, of concerns for the Trojans? Definitely, yeah, and it's a good point because I think you – or I, I just took it for granted. You know, you're, you're searching for something deeper, but the reality is it's right in front of you. It's DTR. It's – it's a guy that don't don't forget. Lincoln Riley has already played him twice when uh, UCLA had a, a home and home with uh, with Oklahoma. So he is well versed on on DTR. In fact, he made reference to us of DTR played Kyler Murray back in the back in the day in, in Norman, I believe, or maybe it was maybe it was the Rose Bowl. But that's how long DTR has been been around. And with that comes a lot of maturity from his end, his end. The DTR that played the, the young DTR that played. Coach Riley, when he was in Oklahoma, is a different quarterback than DTR now. I think I think we get we latch onto this whole like, hey, if DTR can protect the football and if he can stay within himself, like he's been doing that. That that, that story is well in the past. That that is no longer the DTR mold. There, um, he, you know, he's got a great feel for that concept, and it's funny because. The talking point that, oh, Chip Kelly is so creative offensively, I actually think that's not true. I think that's just a talking point that people have. I think what Chip Kelly has done really well under DTR is they have their core family of concepts, and it's it's their bread and butter. It comes up in every single game you watch of them, and when you watch the All-22, and I think DTR is so comfortable with those plays, he can run those in his sleep. And, yes, they have different college variations and shifts out of those core concepts but it is not like chip in 2010 where he is literally inventing new plays every single week like that to me is way in the past and i think that that marriage of dtr just having so many reps under his belt it's made him a more confident passer and then it's complemented his run game as well where it's not a hey i'm gonna run and then i'm gonna sprinkle in the throwing and it's kind of you know that's that's the variation no it's hey, he can operate from the pocket, and he can beat you there. And then once you got him all, all contained in that regard, he can run around, and he's got this habit of hurdling every single person that tries to tackle him. So get ready uh, get ready for that. And then his uh, his top target's been Jake Bobo, the, the Duke transfer. Is there anyone that Bobo is similar to that USC's seen this year? Anyone that stand out as kind of a comp for him? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, he's a big physical receiver. Um, running down the opponents in my mind right now. The short answer is no. I think his skill set is, is unique. Like I said, yeah, he's big and physical. Um, but don't sleep on his quickness. I think he does a really good job of getting in and out of breaks, which then allows him to be a step ahead on the defender to then out-physical him. Um, I think he's a really good red zone threat. And it's the type of guy that I know SC, you know, still trying to figure out that second corner position that Bobo Hill, you know, he'll win those one-on-one matchups. He's no slouch. Um, and they do a really good job of moving him around to make him the key focus in the concept that they're calling. So it's definitely Bobo. I think what jumps out to me, though, is after Bobo, none of those receivers fear me. So it'll be interesting to see if Grinch does allocate more resources to Bobo for that reason, right? You have Charbonnet. All right, he's Charbonnet, DTR, and that backfield, that's priority one. Bobo is priority two. And you probably don't have the luxury to allocate resources to priority three, but I, I say that because, you know, it's not like facing an Arizona offense where you have three receivers and you like your back. It's not like facing a USC offense where, hey, just take your pick of which receiver you want, you want to, you want to, you know, um, cover because they all fear you. I think there's a significant drop off after Bobo that uh, could potentially work for to SC's favor, especially when they're trying to figure out that second cornerback position. And flipping it back around the the other uh, side, USC's offense versus UCLA's defense, and you already mentioned it that that they have some uh, vulnerabilities in in pass coverage, and you uh, you hinted earlier that that Arizona was taking advantage of something very specific. Uh, in that matchup, is there anything you can expound on for us that might apply for the Trojans? Yeah, and if I phrase it that the way, the way I guess it was just high-level quarterback play. And uh, I, the theme that – it was a couple throws that I just broke down of, of Jaden DeLora um, getting after this secondary. And they're, they're big-time throws, and they're throws that Caleb Williams has been making making all year long. And, it's, and the theme, I guess, in that game is second-window throws, which – hey, it means UCLA is doing their job initially, right? They're dropping into the right zone, but they're not able to heat things up on Jay Delora. Or Jay, he was able to use his legs, which expect Caleb Williams to buy some extra time and utilize his legs to then find your receivers and not the first intended window, but the second or third window as you keep running. And to me, I mean, that when UCLA is rocking and rolling, it's when they have Mario Williams in the slot and he – gets past the first linebacker or the, the linebacker drops into his zone and they don't hit the first window and then they hit the second window and the second window is where it's wide open in the middle of the field where you can get big time yards after a catch. So I'd expect USC to, uh, to do something similar. And it'll also be interesting to see. So UCLA's defensive coordinator has been out the past few weeks um, or a couple weeks with a health concern. I don't know the latest there and hopefully he's, he's okay. They're, call it replacement defensive coordinator was my defensive coordinator at USC, Clancy Pendergrass. Um, Yeah, exactly. So a name you recognize and an NFL type of guy and why that's noteworthy is I feel like NFL schemes don't always adjust, you know, their alignments as well as more college type schemes, right? College type schemes, you see teams move from three, four to four, three, to maybe, you know, uh, three, three, five. Like those variations are, are more common at the college ranks to try to get your, fav- your your favorable matchup. The NFL, right, the rosters aren't as big, so it's kind of a, 
we got our guys and let's just let's, let's just line up the reason that is noteworthy is Lincoln Riley does such a good job at formations and leverage and sequencing of play calls to catch those defensive players that might be out of position or might not be in favorable leverage and that whole cat and mouse game of Lincoln Riley elite play caller versus more of an NFL scheme defensively um, keep an eye on that. I thought Oregon got after UCLA in that regard, and it could pay uh, pay dividends for USC on Saturday as well. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, let's do it. Let's make predictions. And there, there seems to be a groundswell of momentum for people picking UCLA in this game. And I think that even myself might have been leaning that way earlier in the week, but I have swung back around, which is uh, I'm sure you expected that I was going to pick the Trojans. But um, I put a lot of thought into it, and I, I just that uh, that game with Arizona just really raised some red flags to me. Certainly saw uh, Oregon handle business against UCLA pretty convincingly. So I, I know that rivalry games are different. That is a variable that you have to account for. Um, but I am going to pick the Trojans, forty-one to thirty-six. Kind of an odd number, but it's just you know you gotta trust your gut on these things. <laughs> just picking your favorite favorite numbers the big Dirk Nowinski Jerome Bettis Jerome Bettis guy um, no and when you get to those high numbers that's where the scores can get wacky I think it's going to be even more high scoring I'm going 48-44 USC and I like the I like the Trojans also for, from like a psychological standpoint I think this defense it, I get the sense that they kind of fuel off of being the underdog in some of these bigger games. And I also think USC has been in a little bit of a lull knowing that they were in a weaker stretch of their schedule with Arizona, Cal, Colorado, kind of in that, in that fold versus early on in the season when it felt like, you know, at that point, everything was new. Everything was hype. Every game was, you know, it felt, you know, big time and especially leading up to, uh, to, to Utah. Um, I, I expected the defense to take a step and, you know, if, if Arizona's offense did that versus UCLA, I think USC's offense is going to have a field day. And um, the Trojan defense finds a way to come up with three stops when they need to throughout the course of the game that end up deciding the game. Very good. Well, uh, before we part, I just kind of one last kind of talking point this week, and it was a question that was pretty much asked to everybody at USC practice, is how this is kind of a, a different – version of this rivalry game and that so many of USC's players are not from here, have not been in the program before, have no uh, reference point for this rivalry at all. Uh, you know, obviously 20 plus transfer portal auditions and add the freshmen in and it's a large chunk of your roster that has really no concept for this, for this game. And it's not quite to that level on the other side, but uh, certainly the Bruins brought in a lot of transfers as well. You, you mentioned a few of them. And, and Bobo and, and Latu and their linebacker, Muasau. So I, it's not like, uh, oh, these guys are going head to head again with all this, you know, personal history between them. Does that do anything to change the complexion of, of maybe that rivalry factor in this game, do you think? I think it does a little bit. I mean, I remember when I played in this rivalry. It was the only game that I saw coaches argue pregame at center field. Our receiver coach, T. Martin, versus uh, UCLA's DB coach. I'm blanking on his name right there. But, like, that's not happening in any other game. And the reason why is because, you know, on a Monday, 
um, on, a, on a Monday, Lincoln Riley might go to a high school, and on a Tuesday, Chip's going to the same high school, and I'm sure that overlap happens a bunch. So um, I'm sure it has a factor, but at the end of the day, when you walk into that Rose Bowl and you get off the bus, I don't care whether you're from Maine or you're from Los Angeles, you can kind of feel that rivalry and feel that buzz. Um I know I did. I was a Seattle guy growing up, and I quickly learned the uh, UCLA USC ways. So I'm sure uh, I'm sure emotions will be hot either way. Uh, we asked Shane Lee about you know how he's gotten indoctrinated into the rivalry, and and he said uh, I, I came out of the building on on Monday and saw the statues were all wrapped and taped up, and I thought UCLA did it. <laughs> and, uh, that's funny. And he, and he found out it was just a protective measure, as we see every time, every year at this time before that. Um, I do actually have one last question for you before we close, and it's a question that you asked to Lincoln on Trojans Live Monday that was really good about how he's continuing to emphasize the success and making sure that people realize what has happened, what is happening this year relative to where things were last year. What is your take on that, and and – what did you get from his answer when you asked him? I think the USC fan base is unique in that, you know, we all have an incredibly high standard. And I don't know if this came as a surprise to Lincoln, but, you know, from Lincoln's standpoint, it's, hey, guys, look what we did this past 11 months. We are literally 9-1 and one with everything we want in front of us, and we were just a straight-up bad football team last year. And I think USC fans, more so than – just about any other fan base can quickly lose sight of that. That's just the reality of what it is. And so to Lincoln's credit, I think he's reminded us of it. And I don't think, I, I don't get the sense of any sort of, Hey, he wants brownie points or he's trying to get extra credit for like what he's done. I think it's more of just kind of a, Hey, USC fan base, check yourself a little bit. Like, Hey, don't forget of where we're at. Like, okay, you can complain about the defense, but don't forget that the defense was awful last year. Don't forget where we were at the past three or four years. And I respect him for that because, and I think I, I don't know if I said this in last week's podcast, but I respect him because I think he's right. And I like that he's doing that, but I also love it because I don't think a Clay Helton or a Steve Sarkeesian or a Lane Kiffin or an Ed Orgeron had the pedigree and the confidence and the standing when they were USC's head coach to say that type of comment and not piss people off, right? Imagine Clay Helton saying that. Are you kidding? Like, we would have had a whole podcast episode about that. Like, no, there's a subtle respect that every USC fan has for Lincoln Riley where he can say stuff like that, and I think he's right. So, um, and and hence why you're asking me right now, it, it... it's obvious go back on youtube and watch all his interviews literally the last three interviews he's done in front of the public or maybe not outside of practice but the last last two post-game interviews and then his presser before the colorado game it came up in the same exact tone he started it in the the post-game pressers of hey we got the win great to be in this standpoint nine one like that type of tone you don't always hear head coaches say that there's a reason he's saying that and it's uh to remind all of us how far this program's come Absolutely, and we'll see if uh, if he can tout ten and one after this week. Max, great show as always. Love having you on, and we will catch up next week. It was fun. Thanks, Ryan.